0: What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the neighborhood podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro.
1: What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, what's going on, my guy?
0: Nothing much. Just chilling on a Sunday night. Ready to knock this out. You ready?
1: Ready every day,
0: Freddy. All right. So let's get to it. Let's go over these topics real quick. So Just to kind of lay these out for you guys, we're going to go over the Game 7 that took place between the Dallas Mavericks and the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, It was was a competitive game. It was a fun one to watch, but the Clippers did end up winning Game 7, and they will advance to the second round of the Western Conference playoffs. After that, we'll talk about Game 1 in the second round between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks surprised many with a road win against the 76ers they won by the score of 128 to 124 so Kevin and I will dive into that for a little bit we'll also talk a little bit about the series between the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks we'll also talk about how James Harden re-aggravated his hamstring injury and the potential impact that his absence could bring to that series We'll also go over two games that are going to take place on Monday. It's going to be game two between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. And we'll also talk about game one between the Phoenix Suns and the Denver Nuggets. We'll give our predictions and then we'll move on to the final topic of the day, which is Julio Jones is now a member of the Tennessee Titans. The Falcons traded him for a second and fifth round pick that will come from Tennessee to Atlanta. So much to the chagrin of Kevin because he's a diehard Colts fan now that he's got to deal with one of the most top flight receivers in his own division for this season and potentially some more seasons to come. But we'll dive into that a little bit later. Like I said at the top, we're going to go over this game seven between the Mavs and the Clippers. So, like I mentioned, the Clippers did win game seven. They won by the score of 126 to 111. All in all, this was a fantastic series. It was a back and forth series. It was actually the first game where a home team won their game at home. It only took seven games to get to this point. But the Clippers do move on to the second round. Now, Kevin, now that the series is over, you have the Clippers going to round two. What was your overall takeaway from this series?
1: Well, um, bias aside, Kawhi Leonard is that guy. Kawhi Leonard shot, silenced all doubters, all haters. A- a- every person that doubted he's a top five, top three player in this league is, is just crazy. The man did it all the entire series. He, he, he cooked us in every facet, long ball mid-range taking it to the basket facilitating rebounding and obviously defending he he's literally the almost like the perfect player minus his court vision because a lot of times his assists came from you know bailing out of a double team or finding somebody open on the perimeter because the double team came to him mid-quarter in the paint so I mean Kawhi Leonard is just one of the greatest players in this in this league to today uh, in today's day and age and it's just it was stellar to watch him at this capacity. I mean, like I said, as a basketball fan, you really tend to enjoy um, watching players like that. Unfortunately, it happened to be against my own team, but I mean, the man just, we, we threw everything we could. We threw man to man, we threw zone, we threw double teams, traps, everything you could think of and Kawhi just found ways to cook us. Um, Paul George had some inconsistencies throughout the series. There were games where he was on, there were games where he was off. So I can't say that he was full-on pandemic P and I can't say that he was playoff P, but at the end of the day, the Los Angeles Clippers did deserve to win this series just because they just played harder and their role players stepped up. Now switching it over to the Mavericks perspective, Luka Doncic had 46 points, 14 assists and seven rebounds, but in a pivotal game seven, he did have six turnovers and some costly Bad shots. Um, I would say his shot selection late in the fourth quarter, let alone the second half, were just not well, not smart. And that just shows, again, inexperience, maybe overconfidence, maybe desperation, I don't know. Um, Kristaps Porzingis scored his first double-digit game since, I think, game four. He had 16 points and 11 rebounds. Boban Marjanovic had 14 points. Tim Hardaway Jr. had the worst night in his series. In this series, he had 11 points on 5 of 14 shooting. Well, Dorian Finney-Smith, again, I called him to be the X-Factor of this series. He had his first double-digit game since game one. He had 18 points. He had 11 rebounds with six off, excuse me, 10 rebounds with six offensive rebounds, but he did have four turnovers. So between Luca and Dorian, there's 10 turnovers right there. But our bench kind of screwed us. We had six total bench points in the entire game. Max Cleveland played nine minutes, zero points. We had Dwight Powell come in two for two shooting, five minutes, four points. Trey Burke, Big question mark. I'll get into that in a second. He had eight minutes with zero points. Jalen Brunson, 10 minutes, two points. Josh Richardson, uh, six minutes, two turnovers, zero points. So, I mean, the starters did what they needed to do. They produced where they needed to. They played efficient basketball other than Tim Hardaway Jr. having an off night, his first off night pretty much of the entire series, like I had said. But everyone else failed to, uh, to kind of step up. And in this particular instance, uh, I'm just going to highlight one particular question. I normally never question Coach Carlisle ever, especially in his tenure, being one of the greatest coaches in the league right now. Um, The substitution of Trey Burke in this game, barely played in the entire series. I don't understand why he got burned over uh, 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 Jalen Brunson. Jalen had 10 minutes, but there were a lot of times where Trey would come in instead of Jalen. Jalen was our best bench player this entire season. Jalen again was only one for three, he only had two points. But Trey Burke played a valuable eight minutes, and in my opinion, those eight minutes could have been divvied up between him and uh, Jalen Brunson and Josh Richardson. Josh Richardson, of course, being a better defender, I get it. In the third quarter, we were down almost 25 points. Uh, coach is trying to spark the offense and maybe throw somebody out there that could maybe change it up. But I thought that that was a timely mistake because Trey had barely played the entire series, he came out cold, he was 0 for 3. He was just a mismatch on the defensive end, you know, kind of just being scored on. He was a negative 10 and the plus minus. And, I mean, you really look at it, the substitution made no sense to me. Uh, and then my immediate, my next circle is Christoph Porzingis, $153 million. He's being paid $30 plus million a year. He only had uh, 12 shots. He was 0 for 5 from the three-point line. This was his first game, if I'm not mistaken, this entire series. He's had double-digit rebounds, and he only had 16 points. If you're going to be the running mate to Luka Doncic, if you're going to be the number two, if you're going to be the unicorn, the guy that we gave up a first round pick for and paid an entire, basically an entire bank worth of money for, 16 points isn't enough. Eight points in the last game, seven points in the game before that, not enough in the slightest. I think Dallas needs to sit back and we need to go over this roster and reevaluate what it is that we really need. And in my opinion, that is defensive presence and aggressiveness. There were a lot of instances where we just got out rebounded in the fourth quarter. We just, we just watched the ball sails o- sailed over our heads. We didn't box out. We didn't hustle. Um, there were a lot of times where we got beat down the floor in, in terms of fast break. And we took those, uh, those easy fouls. Those, Hey, you know, they, 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 it's like I said, last episode, they got in front of us. Let me just foul really quick so we can get back on defense. There was a lot of those. I hate those fouls. Jeff Van Gundy talked about it. Those should not be allowed in the NBA to a certain extent. I agree. Mark Jackson said it. Um, those fouls are to help teams that are at a disadvantage. But in our case, it, it was just laziness. It, you know, people complaining, people not getting back on defense, people just looking for calls that they never got. Overall. I, I just, I look at this team and I say, we had this game in terms of at least keeping, keeping it close. And then that third quarter, the Clippers erupted for 30 points. I mean, we did get 23 points in the third, but they were late game scores because we just played like dog shit in the second half. And, I know the score doesn't reflect that via the box score, but I'm just sitting here remembering and watching these certain possessions in certain series. I mean, Luca forcing threes in the fourth quarter, Luca forcing possessions where he was doubled and didn't get rid of the ball in time. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith trying to collapse and pass out of shots he should have never done or should have just taken the ball up at the rim. Christoph Torzingus, 0 for 5 from the three, like I said. I'm not happy that we lost. I understand why we lost. The Clippers played phenomenal basketball, and I'm going to get into their box score right now. I mean, like I said, you really look at this box score, and their team stepped up where they needed to. Paul George, 22 points. Unfortunately, he was 5 of 15 from the field, but he was 10 of 10 from the free throw line. Reggie Jackson played stellar clutch minutes. He had 15 points in 28 minutes. Marcus Morris, he was clutch. He had his best game of the series with 23 points, 8 of 15 from the field. Kawhi Leonard had 28 points, four steals, nine assists, 10 rebounds, basically doing everything for this team. And even Batum came out there, played 42 minutes and put up 11 points, five assists, seven boards, and a block. And then their bench, Terrence Mann, had his best game of the entire series. He had 13 points. And then Luke Kennard, the sharp shooter from the Clippers off the bench, shooting 45% from the three-point line this regular season. He scores 11 points, going three of five from the the three-point line. So where it mattered most, the Clippers did what they needed to do they didn't miss a single free throw. They shot over 45% from the three-point line. They shot 50% from the field. And then Dallas almost shot 50% from the field, under 30% from three, and under 65% from the free throw line. So, again, the series was great. It was back and forth every game, other than this game and game four where we got blown out because Luca's injury, and then this game where we kind of let the game get out of hand. I, each game was close. Each game came down to the wire, and – It just shows, you know, we're missing that one piece. I don't know if that means Porzingis gets traded. I don't know if this means we go after Bradley Beal. I have no idea what's going to happen this offseason. But the Clippers advance, and they are going to face the Utah Jazz in the next round. And they rightfully deserve it. And it's going to be a good series.
0: I think all in all, the one thing that it showed me with this series is, like you mentioned, Kawhi is that guy. He stepped up for them. In a big way, in Game Six, dropping over 40 points in a must-win 45. game on the road, it, he was absolutely sensational. And then you transitioned into Game Seven; he had a, a very efficient, he had a very efficient game, 10 to 15 from the field, almost scores 30 points in the process. But the Clippers starters played extremely well. Batum, like you said, had 11. Kawhi had 28. Marcus Morris had 23. Reggie Jackson had 15, and Paul George had 22. It's pretty tough to combat with the starters and then they were able to get some decent bench production like you mentioned. And I think something that needs to be addressed here, just to kind of flip it to the Mavs for a second, is their over-reliance on Luka Doncic. That is one of the main takeaways from the Dallas side of things. Because, don't get me wrong, he had a fantastic game, dropping 46 points in a must-win Game 7. But... The other players who started for the Mavs, they didn't step up. Tim Hardaway Jr. is one that kind of stands out to me because he was one on nine behind the three-point line. And And the Mavs had some good looks to knock down some threes to get back into this game. And they just weren't able to make it happen. And that's really kind of the standout thing to me is that The Clippers were able to knock down their threes a lot better than the Mavs. And the one thing that really kind of stood out to me about the Mavs defense when it came to the Clippers shooting their threes is their recovery time to try to get back to the man that they were assigned to guard was really slow. Well,
1: you're in a zone, so it ended up being rotational issues because we always ended up leaving the corner open,
0: But they were what I said a while ago. They were doubling Kawhi. You have to. And I was like, I was watching the defensive scheme that the Mavericks had against Kawhi and the Clippers. They put a little bit too much pressure on maybe guarding Kawhi. And guess what? It leaves those corner threes wide open. Marcus Morris made it a habit to knock down those threes in the corner, not only in game seven, but in previous games throughout this series. And it came to bite the Mavs in the end. And, and, I thought that this was a game that the Mavs, even though that they were down, they made a run at the end of the fourth quarter. And I thought they they had a chance to get it to maybe even one or two possessions, but they could not knock down some shots. I think Reggie Jackson ended up knocking down two clutch threes at the end of the fourth quarter.
1: 28 footer, bro. We had perfect defense on the sequence. Reggie jab steps on Tim and pulls. I was like, I'll live with a 28-foot three-point shot any day of the week by anybody on this team. That's a deep fucking three, and he swishes it. He doesn't just make it. He splashes it. And I was just like, well, there that goes.
0: And then at that point, pretty much the Mavs were dead in the water, and that's pretty much all she wrote. All in all, though, this was a fantastic series. Oh, yeah. It's it's just a classic 4-5 matchup that goes the distance, And just the the odd thing from this series was the fact that no home team won a home game until Game Seven. That's what first time in NBA history. Yeah, so you know, give credit where credit is due. The Clippers stepped up when they needed to, and they avoid really just an entire social media roast had they lost this series. Because had they lost this game against the Mavs, the the outpouring of roasting would have been swift and fierce towards the Clippers had they dropped this game. But yeah, my two biggest takeaways was man. Kawhi is that guy stepped up when they, when he needed to. And I think the Mavs, they just rely a little bit too much on Luca. I mean, he shot over 50% shooting at 30 times. It's fantastic. But some of the other guys got to step up and they just couldn't execute. And that's why Dallas is headed to the Cancun Invitational. He's going to join freaking LeBron and Seth Curry. And uh, they're going to watch the rest of the playoffs there. So it is what yeah. it is. Yep, it definitely is.
1: But, you know, moving on, because my heartbreak is enough today, uh, we'll transition into the Atlanta Hawks upsetting the Philadelphia 76ers in their first round of the Eastern Conference semifinals, winning that game, as Kyle stated, 128 to 124. Um Obviously, the stellar play of Trey Young was not overshadowed, but I want to say matched with the amazing play of Ben. Excuse me, of Joel Embiid coming off of his meniscus injury. He scored 39 points in 38 minutes, very efficient from the free throw line, going 14 of 15 with nine rebounds and four assists, and also three blocks. And then obviously the rest of the team kind of followed suit. Uh, Seth Curry had 21. Ben Simmons had 17, 10, and four steals. And then Tobias Harris had a 20-point game with 10 rebounds. Uh, obviously, um, Thibel had 10 points coming off the bench, but Atlanta just continued to throw haymakers throughout this entire game, and they continued to finish strong. They ended up going with Bogdanovich scoring 21. Trey had 35 with 10 assists. Uh, Klapella had another double-double with 11 and 10. And then John Collins had uh, 21 points with four rebounds. So all in all, very good game, but don't let the box score fool you, or should I say don't let the final score fool you. Atlanta came out of this game very hot, scoring 42 points in the first quarter and followed suit with 32 points in the second. So we're looking at 64 points in a first-half game against a very good and very defensive team in Philadelphia. And um, it almost looked like Atlanta was going to run away with this in the first half until Philly kind of got their act together. And uh, they scored 29 in the third and 41 in the fourth, and they, they made this a game towards the end but Atlanta scored enough and pulled away and kept the lead intact enough for them to hang on for a game one upset. So my question to you, Kyle, is can Atlanta reproduce this magical, almost game in Philadelphia for game two? And can they hold on to potentially maybe upset Philly, the number one seed in the East?
0: It'd be a surprise to me if that happened. I, I think two things that are coming into mind for me about this game was The fact that Atlanta shot very well behind the three-point line, I believe they shot, I think it was 42% behind the three-point line. I think the Mm -hmm. the Sixers were kind of like in the low to mid-30s. But one stat that really kind of popped out to me, outside of the fact that Atlanta got off to a very hot start at the beginning of the game, was the 76ers' inability to shoot free throws. They went to the line 35 times and were only able to knock down 24... yeah, that's 11 points. It's 11 potential points that you missed. 68% and from the free throw line. That's, terrible. that's That's not going to get it done. I mean, if even if they have made 80% of their free throws, they're going to win that game. Granted, it'd be a close one, but it goes a long way to making this an actual game and possibly a win for Philly. Now, for game two, I think the one thing that the 76ers are going to have to do is they're going to have to adjust – to stopping Trey Young. This is the problem that the Knicks ran into. They could not stop Trey. Trey just continues his excellence in the playoffs. In his first playoff in his entire career, he's off to a phenomenal start. And I think his excellence that he's displaying on the court on a nightly basis is rubbing off on his teammates as well. John Collins had a fantastic game. He was able to go... 7-9 7-9 from the field, but not down 75% of his threes. You also had Bodanovich. He knocked down five of his threes. Wasn't necessarily the best game as far as his efficiency goes, but 21 points on the road, that's huge. And then they were able to get some good bench production from Lou Williams and Kevin Herter. So even Gallinari chipped in with nine. So to me, this is a winning recipe for Atlanta because they've been able to win playoff games this year in different ways in game one against Philly. They were able to just outscore the 76ers in the previous series against the Knicks. They won both ways. They could score a lot of points, but they could also limit the Knicks offense to struggle mightily to the point where just the Knicks really struggled from the field. So I think if you're the 76ers, you have to adjust in this series and you got to be able to slow down Trey. You slow down Trey and you force other guys on the Hawks to beat you. That's something that you can live with. But if Trey's having a bad game, if the if the Hawks are just off a little bit, I think the 76ers can come back in game two, tie the series one, one when they go to game three in Atlanta. But I'll tell you what, the Hawks have been super impressive to me to start this playoff. To start this playoff hey, run. I did not expect them to even get past New York. They won that series very convincingly in five. And the Sixers should not walk over the Hawks here because the Hawks, if they play their cards right, they could really do some damage against the 76ers and potentially upset them. But there is a part of me that thinks it's a little bit too early to say that, but they're off to a very good start. And if they play similar, like they did in game one and game two, they could potentially be up 2-0 going back to Atlanta for game three. And if that's the case, the 76 ers need to be deeply concerned about that because they're the number one team in the Eastern conference. And despite Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons having really good games, it still wasn't enough. The Hawks got a deep team here. If people need to start taking them seriously because they could do some real damage in these playoffs. If these teams do not treat them with the respect that they deserve.
1: Yeah. I mean, last point on the Philly matchup. Uh, I believe that hack shack mentality is coming back with Ben Simmons inability to knock down free throws. The man has shot horribly in the postseason for free throws. I mean, I don't know his exact percentage but he was 3 of 10 today and I know that he didn't make a free throw in his series against the Wizards up until about game 3 or 4. He was about like 0 for 11 and I think it's actually coming back to bite him. I knew I do know that a lot of people in the NBA and analysts and you know like radio podcast people like us have been saying Ben Simmons needs to get his jump shot in order or his shooting in order. And I think this is going to come back to bite them this series if he doesn't get his act together because he's shooting less than Luka Doncic was. And we all know the stellar play that Luka was playing at Mm -hmm. in the seven-game series against the Clippers. You're sitting here basically shooting, what is it, maybe under 30%, maybe under 40%. Again, I, I do not know the specifics, but I do know that he shot atrociously in the last series and he followed suit this game. If Ben can't get his free throw percentage up, This is going to be a long series for Philadelphia if these games end up coming down to the wire because we all know what's going to happen late in game. They're just going to be fouling Ben the entire game, and it's going to come down to free throws. And if that's the case, Philadelphia will be in a lot of trouble. But another team that could be in a lot of trouble is the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets did beat the Milwaukee Bucks in game one of their series by a score of one hundred fifteen to one hundred seven, but in that process, they did lose one of their superstars, James Harden, within the first minute mm-hmm. of their first, of, of their game, and James Harden is out officially for game two, come uh, come tomorrow night. So, Kyle, could the Nets hold off Milwaukee, Milwaukee's resurging offense without the play of James Harden?
0: Yeah, even though that James Harden is out. I think they still have enough firepower with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. I'm not concerned about about the Brooklyn Nets' ability to score. Mind you, Milwaukee has a very solid defense, and Brooklyn was still able to put up 115 in the first game of the series. Now, for game two, I do expect the (sighs) defensive intensity from Milwaukee to step up a little bit more since they got the first taste from Brooklyn in game one. So I think there's going to be a lot more pressure that the Bucks are going to put on Kevin and Kyrie to force them to pass to other guys on the team and allow the role players for Brooklyn to beat them if that's the case but all in all I think Milwaukee's got a very good shot to win game two just because Giannis had a very good game and that's despite Chris Middleton having a bad game Chris Middleton really was bad just game off. Six of twenty-three in game one, only scored 13 points. But Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez, those guys played pretty well in game one. Game one on the road, not necessarily the easiest one to get on the to get when you're going up against a juggernaut in the Brooklyn Nets. So, you know, looking towards game two, I think if if Milwaukee does get a little bit better bench production than what they got in game one. Hopefully Chris Middleton steps up in game two. If Giannis keeps playing like he did in in game one, I think Milwaukee's got a very good shot to win game two and to tie the series at 1-1 when they go back to Milwaukee for game three. But, But for Brooklyn, I just say, just keep on doing what you're doing. Katie had a very good game to start off the series. Blake Griffin was huge after James Harden went down. He had 18 points. Joe Harris had a solid game. He knocked down five threes, had 19 points in that game. And then Kyrie had 25. Very methodical night. He was typical Kyrie. So all in all, these are two good teams. And I think this is going to be a series. This is going to go back and forth just because I think some nights, I think Milwaukee's defense is going to make a difference. And there are going to be some nights where I think that Brooklyn's offense is just going to overpower Milwaukee's defense. But with James out of the lineup, it does limit Brooklyn's offense to a certain extent, but not to the point where I think Milwaukee takes an overwhelming advantage in the series. When you got KD and Kyrie still in your starting five, and then you got Blake Griffin as well, that's still a pretty good three-man superstar tag team right there. So I can't I'm not gonna rule out Brooklyn's ability to score offensively. They're still gonna be able to put up points, even despite what I think Milwaukee could throw at them defensively. But I do expect Milwaukee to step up their defense for game two. That's just what I expect.
1: Yeah, no, um again, as per usual, Kyle just reads my mind. I feel like we're on a telepathic wave for the majority of these episodes. Um, we're, ju- we're just here. The Neighborhood Podcast, we're on the same fucking page. Let everybody know we put people on notice. Um, it's just really scary to know that Chris had such a bad game in reference to Chris Middleton. And to know that this game was basically within, within reach for Milwaukee in the second half. Um, Brooklyn only scoring 17 points in that fourth quarter. And Milwaukee kind of trying to claw back and... They fall short, like I said, and we're just sitting here looking at this box score like, man, there's potential here for this series to possibly go seven. I know I said that with Milwaukee's last series, but like me and Kyle predicted in the previous episode, they, they match up very well in reference to the, the Bucks and the Nets. You know, we have two superstars, two bigs and Kevin Durant and Giannis Antetokounmpo. We have two great scoring backs, uh, backcourts that are drew holiday and Chris Middleton and James Harden and Kyrie Irving. And I just, I don't know how this Harden injury is going to affect the series because we all know that KD and Kyrie can carry a team, but when you just put James Harden in the mix, you just know automatically that this could be easily become an overwhelming matchup for Milwaukee. But I just look for Chris Middleton to bounce back in game two I look for Giannis to have a similar game like he did. And, and again, you know, the bench play for the Bucs, like Kyle said, does need to step up, and they need to go out there and dominate and then at least, you know, give them a little bit more production so that these games can be a bit closer. It definitely was surprising to see Blake Griffin go out there and grab 14 boards and have 18 points. I will not lie. So – We'll see how Milwaukee adjusts with the next game. And then we'll see what Brooklyn does in their starting lineup to combat, you know, the loss of James Harden in game two. But I do expect this game to again, be very, very close. And I look forward to game two, but that does bring us to our next topic, which is the predictions for said games tomorrow, which at this point we might as well just start with the Brooklyn Nets at the, uh, well, the Bucks at the Nets. Kyle, who do you got for game two and why?
0: I'm going to take the Bucks here. I think the Bucks are going to step up their defensive intensity, and I also think that they're going to be able to shoot better threes and shoot better from the free throw line than they did in game one. Just to kind of pull up the stats here, in game one, Milwaukee shot 20% behind the three-point line. They shot 6-30. Yeah. That's just abysmal. It's not enough, and it's not going to be enough against a juggernaut in the Brooklyn Nets. And then you pair that with their free throw percentage, They shot 57% from the free throw line as a team that you can't have that, especially on the road. That's, that's never a good sign. So I think they're definitely going to improve those aspects of their game going into game two. I expect Chris Middleton to have a huge bounce back game. Look, scoring 13 points in game one, when you're the Robin to Giannis's Batman, it's not enough. Giannis had a fantastic game in game one. And it's just, it's unfortunate to see that Chris Middleton th- just didn't have his best game in game one. But I expect him to have a huge bounce back game. And I also expect that the Bucks bench is going to come up big and make a difference in this game. For the Nets, I still think that KD and Kyrie are going to do work. They're probably going to shoot somewhere around 45 to 50% for the both of them. And they're probably going to score somewhere around, I'd say probably maybe 50 to 60 points between the two of them. We'll see if Blake Griffin can replicate his game one performance that he had. But I think he's going to take a slight step down in game two. And I just don't think that the Nets are going to be able to knock down threes that the way that they did in game one. I think because of the intensity that the Bucks are going to bring on defense, I think it's going to make a big change as far as the Nets' ability to knock down the three-pointers, and it's going to have a sizable impact. And I think the Bucks win a close one here, probably around maybe like a five-point win for Milwaukee, but I think they tied this series 1-1 as we transition back to Milwaukee for game three. I agree
1: completely. I think Chris has a better game, and I think Milwaukee continues to take advantage of the mismatch at the lack of a big that the Nets have. With Blake Griffin potentially playing that five spot continuously for the for the uh, the Brooklyn Nets. I think they feed Brooke Lopez down low in the paint. I think they get Blake maybe into some foul trouble, and I think maybe Brooke Lopez goes out for a big game, maybe 25, 10, and 5. Um, Drew Holiday follows suit right behind, maybe going with 20, and I think Giannis has another big game, man. I think that Giannis is a a difficult matchup for anybody to guard. And then you put Kevin Durant who needs to go out and put that effort into his offensive game. And if he continues to have to guard Giannis, it's going to be a long night for KD. Not that KD cannot defend, but if we're looking at it physically, that is a very hard and difficult matchup for KD with Giannis being as big as he is and dominant down low in that post and his ability to rebound and chase the rebound on the offensive glass as well. So I agree. I think Milwaukee ties the series one, one and I think that it's going to be a great series going forward, like I said a multitude of times. But we do have one series that has not begun in terms of that has been that is going to be played tomorrow. And that is the Denver Nuggets at the Phoenix Suns. We have a two and three matchup going at it at 10 o'clock tomorrow night. And obviously, we have the stellar play of Devin Booker, who beat the LA Lakers in six games. And then we have the MVP potentially in Nikola Jokic, who led past the hot end. I can't even say hot. I want to say the Damian Lillard hot red Portland Trailblazers. So Kyle, I'm just going to ask you straight up: Who do you have for Game One, and why? I'm
0: going to go with the Suns here. I I was just so impressed with what Devin Booker was able to to display against the Lakers, especially in that Game Six matchup against the defending champions in the Lakers. He, he was absolutely sensational in that series, and he was just lights out behind the three-point line I think more is going to continue as far as his three-point production goes against the Nuggets in game one I think he's going to probably have somewhere between 35 possibly even 40 points just because I don't think that the Nuggets defense is going to be able to contend with him the Nuggets gave up 55 to Damian Lillard and I think Devin Booker is definitely capable of putting up similar type numbers not only in just game one, but in this series as well. But I think I think the big thing that we have to focus on here with the Suns is just Chris Paul. Even though that I think he's going to be limited because of his shoulder injury, that doesn't mean that it's all doom and gloom for the Suns. When he came back with six minutes left against the Lakers in game six, the Phoenix Suns went on a major run that took a 10-point lead where the Lakers were coming back into a 17-point lead, almost a 20-point lead, and essentially iced it. So I think his floor general abilities, his ability to facilitate the ball extremely well, I think is going to be pivotal in game one. It wouldn't surprise me if he he becomes more of a facilitator in this series. And I think it's going to leave a lot of opportunities for DeAndre Ayton to get some easy buckets just because you have to respect – Chris Paul's ability to shoot mid-range jumpers, but also his ability to pass, and I think it's going to set up some guys down low to score, specifically with DeAndre Ayton, but it also frees up some sharpshooters. I think we're going to see Jay Crowder knock down a litany of three-point shots in not only game one, but in this series as well. And you could look across the board. Cameron Johnson was knocking down threes against the Lakers, and it wouldn't surprise me if he does the same in this series as well. But as far as game one goes, I think the Suns win this one. I wouldn't say in like overwhelmingly convincing fashion. I think they win this game by 10 points. And I think they get game one at home.
1: So I'm actually going to combat this and predict predict the Denver Nuggets to go with the upset. Uh, I think the play of Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. are pretty dominant in terms of size. Michael Porter being a very big uh Offensive threat in terms of size and offensive production. I think he becomes a a kind of a mismatch for the Phoenix Suns to go out and guard. And I do think that Nikola is the best center in the league right alongside Joel Embiid. And his ability to facilitate rebound and play on the defensive end is going to create havoc for the Phoenix Suns that are going to be driving it in and potentially trying to penetrate in the paint. I think Nikola goes for 30, 10 and 10. And he has a very big statement game for the Nuggets. And I think that, you know, Monte Morris coming off the bench has been nothing short of stellar. And I think that he is a walking mismatch as well. He's been very efficient and and very dialed in offensively, as well as facilitating the basketball towards his his scores. And, uh, you know, Aaron Gordon has been a little lackluster to say the least uh, everybody thought he was going to come over from that trade with Orlando and kind of dominate power forward position, but he's been playing efficiently. You know, he's been playing at least, you know, maybe 15 and 10, 13 and 10. So I think that he has a, a solid game as well. So I definitely have Denver going out there and studying Phoenix in Phoenix. And I think that's a solely by Nicolio Leo, which is dominant play right behind Michael Porter jr. And those boys,
0: I think two X factors in this series, I think they're going to be two bench players. One is Cameron Payne with the Suns, and the other one is, like you mentioned, in Monte Morris. Those guys were pivotal for winning their respective series in round one. It's just that I think that Cameron Payne is going to have a excellent shooting performance in game one. Just the energy that Cameron brings to the Suns, especially coming off the bench, I think it's just infectious for that entire bench squad that goes out once the starters are out and I don't know what it is with Cameron Payne but he has been looking sensational to start the playoffs and I think more just can I think it's more of the same in this series just because I don't think that the Denver defense is going to be able to combat against him I just don't see it but like I did mention Monte Morris Monte Morris I think is going to have a solid series as well he was huge for them in that Portland series and I think it's going to be more the same for him. So if you're the Suns, you got to, to watch out for Monte Morris because he can shoot the lights out. I mean, he's a role player and is capable of scoring 30 points. That, that's no, Bay that's time. no accident. Listen, nope. Monte Morris can hoop. And if the Suns don't prepare for that, they could be in trouble. But like I said, I still got the Suns winning game one. I'd say maybe by 10 points. Like I mentioned. Fair enough.
1: Fair enough. Well, That about wraps up the NBA news for us. You know, as if my day couldn't get any worse. The Tennessee Titans go out and trade for all-star, as I call it, pro bowl, all-pro superstar wide receiver Julio Jones from the Atlanta Falcons for a second and fifth round pick. The trade has not officially been made official according to Shefty and a lot of other people. It's got about a 24 to 48 hour window uh presuming that Julio passes his physical and the Tennessee kind of signs on the dotted line in terms of accepting the terms of the trade with it being a second and fifth round pick so I'm looking at this um, I'm in Orlando right I'm with my family and I'm in the hotel and we're getting ready to leave we're packing up my brother goes to the bathroom and all I hear is my brother scream oh shit in my opinion I thought my brother fell in the toilet I thought maybe he got hurt or something stupid. And I'm just like, ah, oh, shit, I gotta go get a plunger or a shovel. I don't know what the hell's going on here. And he goes, and I'm like, yo, you're all right. And he goes, yo, you're kind of fucked. And I was like, um, I'm not in the bathroom here. seems like you're in a predicament, not me. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, Julio Jones has got traded to the Titans. Right then and there. I felt like metaphorically, I fell in the toilet because my butthole puckered up to my yay small. And I immediately fell into fear and frustration because I said, great. Tennessee has been a problem in itself without Julio Jones. And now we have to deal with Derrick Henry, AJ Brown, and now Julio Jones. So um, my Sunday started off pretty shitty, excluding some Denny's breakfast. It was a little subpar, but you know, aside from my misery from a football standpoint, Kyle, where does this put the Titans? If this trade does officially go through and do you think that they can make a run in this AFC with the acquisition of a potential all-pro in Julio Jones?
0: Well, I think as far as the AFC goes, it it puts them in a top three, top four position in the AFC. That's how I see it. And I think, honestly, I think when Indianapolis, when they added Carson Wentz, I think that addition to their team brought them closer to the Titans as the best team in the AFC South. With this move, however, I do believe that there is a slight gap between – The Tennessee Titans in the Indianapolis Colts. So, just as it currently stands right now, just prisoner of the moment, I would give the slight edge to the Tennessee Titans. Just because, dude, when you add a All Pro receiver, one a Hall of Fame receiver, eventually in Julio Jones, that's going to be a nightmare defensively for any team that goes up against him. It's like you mentioned at the top. Look, you got to combat against Ryan Tannehill who has become one of the more efficient quarterbacks in the last couple of seasons with Tennessee, Derrick Henry, who was just a nightmare to tackle at the running back spot. And then you got AJ Brown to cover in the wideout position on top of Julio Jones, man. That is, that's a lot to ask for, for defenses to go up against those guys. I think offensively, I think the Titans are going to be able to score at will just because you have way too many dynamic playmakers at the running back position, at the quarterback position, and now the wideout spot. So, look, yeah, they had A.J. Brown and Corey Davis last year, and in in all sense here, they upgraded by getting Julio Jones. So, granted, they're not getting what I would assume is prime Julio Jones from a couple no. of years ago when they were making their Super Bowl run, but it's Julio Jones. And he is going to be fun to watch for for Tennessee this year. I think he's. Speak think for he's, yourself. He's going to get. It wouldn't surprise me if he gets over a thousand yards easy, just because I think he's going to be able to light up, light it up for Tennessee. And I think, just by my estimation right now, it does make them the favorite in the AFC South. But I'm not going to go as far to say that they're instantaneously the favor to come out of the AFC just because there's too many good teams with the chiefs and the bills that are ahead of them. And I think both of those teams are more well-rounded than what the Titans currently have right now, just because the Titans defense is just hit or miss with me. No, no, no. It's not hit or miss. It's awful.
1: They did not so, upgrade. They lost Davion Clowney and they, they lost Malcolm Butler. They're, they're pretty bad. They're they're not looking good, and that is is with full confidence I can say that in terms of off-season acquisitions.
0: But now I need to get your take. Now, what does this move do for you? What's your take about this one?
1: So I'm looking at this as an overall football move, right? I'm excluding the Colts, right? So typically when you play against a team like Tennessee prior to the Julio Jones acquisition, right – your main threat, your main focal point defensively, if you're playing against them, is to stack the box and try to stop Derrick Henry at every facet of the word. Any, any Anything you can do, whether that's a blitz, whether that's a, a zone read, anything you try to do is to stop that man. Because we all know that Tennessee lives and dies by the play action. You deal with the one-on-one matchups with AJ Brown on the outside and maybe some safety help over the top. So you probably don't double AJ depending on the circumstances of the game, right? That's no longer a thing. You, you can't stack the box. Mm. You cannot double AJ Brown. You double Julio. So I think this puts Tennessee in immediate AFC Contention, and and I'm, I'm I'm predicting them to go to the AFC Championship against Kansas City this season because they were already scary enough with Derrick Henry and just AJ Brown. That play action boded wonders for that offense. Ryan Tannehill looked like a, a Pro Bowl quarterback in a lot of instances with just a a fake handoff and AJ Brown going deep or AJ Brown over the middle or Corey Davis or Jono Smith, whatever. Now you add, like Kyle said, a future Hall of Fame receiver, an all-pro who does everything at the wide receiver position, jump ball, route running, breakaway speed, and blocking, it immediately puts a team that was already a threat to AFC teams on a good night to catapult them into contenders for a Super Bowl. Because you have to pick your poison. You double Julio. You leave seven in the box, Derrick Henry takes off. You single cover both receivers, you stack the box, you have one of those Pro Bowl receivers wide open. So what are you going to do? What packages do you do you set up for if you're in the AFC South to try to combat? You have Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl, and potential Pro Bowl in A.J. Brown. No, A.J. Brown did make the Pro Bowl this year. So you have three Pro Bowl offensive players in the Tennessee Titans offense, and Ryan Tannehill, who's an above-average quarterback, in his recent resurgence with the Titans, I think if you're if you're playing against Tennessee, your only hope isn't stopping them defensively, is beating them in a shootout and hoping that Tannehill overthrows or that somebody drops something. Because if you really try to break this down, they have the potential to drain the clock with Derrick Henry late in game. They have the big play dynamic to go with the long ball, short ball, and they also have possession receivers. And then you go out and look at the efficiency of Ryan Tannehill's accuracy, throwing down the check down, throwing the deep ball and everything else that he can do. And then Mike Vrabel's offense, that they've been running since they got there. It, it's a formula for disaster for defenses, man. As a Colts fan, our offense is obviously better than our offense. Excuse me. Our defense is obviously better than our offense. But in this case, we don't have two corners to go out there and lock up both. We have, A good linebacking core. Obviously, we lost Anthony Walker. We have Bobby Okariki and EJ Speed and a litany of other backs, but Darius Leonard is the first that comes to mind. We have DeForest Buckner and Grover Stewart and some other good defensive linemen, but how in the hell are we going to stop this offense from moving downfield? If this is a short yardage situation, Derrick Henry's mowing over most lines. If this is a third and long, you can't even rule out a a fucking Hail Mary or a post route to the corner on the opposite side of the field because Julio Jones is so dynamic. So I think this just spreads out the offense 10 times more. I think this makes Ryan Tannehill's job a lot easier. And I think A.J. Brown has one of the best seasons he's had in his career, if not the best season, because you have to double Julio. He's been doubled since he's been in the league. You leave him one-on-one with any cornerback that isn't Jalen Ramsey – and this is going to be a nightmare for all defensive coordinators this move is so big for the Titans this move is so bad for the Colts that I don't know what else to say other than people better buckle up because the Titans is coming bro
0: and that's saying if they stay healthy, you know all, yeah. all these guys have all these guys have to stay healthy as well but I think when you look at this from a, a defensive perspective, I'll be honest with you. I would rather get beat by Julio Jones and A.J. Brown than getting mowed down for 250 yards by Derrick Henry. Just because, look, I've always thought of this mindset of, you know, running backs are grinders. They can grind a defense down. Marshawn Lynch made a career of doing that. And Derrick Henry is doing that and then some just because, dude, some of these totals that he puts up on, daily basis in some of these games is absolutely ridiculous. If he gets loose, it's over. And I listen, I know these guys are NFL defenders, but I know that they are probably not sleeping at night knowing that they got to go one-on-one potentially trying to tackle Derrick Henry, because he is just a beast in every sense of the word. Cool. So I think, th- I think defensively, I think a lot of teams are going to try to slow down Derek Henry and they're gonna force Ryan Tannehill to beat them because I think if it's the other way around, I don't think these teams can stop Derrick Henry. I you know, there's very few de- defenses that could really show a lot of strength by slowing him down. The Ravens did a good job of it last year in the playoffs. They showed that they were able to slow him down and and mitigate his his ability to just run over defenses in the AFC wildcard game. So it's just, you know, you kind of, it's like you said, you kind of have to pick your poison here. Do you get mowed down by Derrick Henry or do you get torched by AJ Brown and Julio Jones? That's, that's why I don't get paid, you know, millions of dollars as a defensive coordinator, because these guys are going to have to come up with schemes against that. That is not going to be fun.
1: Yeah. I got to play them twice this year. So not not looking forward to it. Sundays are going to hurt. So it's fine. The Mavs broke my heart. The Yankees are breaking my heart currently. And you know, it is what it is. The Colts will probably end up breaking my heart too. This is all pending if Carson Wentz has a, a decent year, let alone the Colts having a good one. So um with that being said, guys, I'm gonna cry myself to sleep as this day has just been absolutely atrocious. So that's all I have. Thank you guys for the continuous support. We continue to get subscribers on a daily basis, even if it is just one. So if you have not subscribed, please do like a video. Please comment below. Let us know we can what we can improve upon. Um, I do want to give a super big shout out to a day one. I'm Van Dawson hit me up on the way back from Orlando. Let me and Kyle know directly. I showed Kyle the text messages. He's telling us every day, you know, we're doing good. He, he listens to us every day on the way to work, coming home, um, loves what we're doing, says we're getting better. Can't wait for more from the future for us. So for that, Dawson, we love you, man. We really do appreciate everything you have done, including coming on the show, sharing the podcast, sharing the link, showing your friends and your coworkers. It, 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 it does deeply, deeply mean a lot. And uh, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much. We wouldn't be here without people like you. And, uh, we cannot wait to bring more content for you and for everybody else.
0: Well said. And just from this side, Dawson, we definitely appreciate the support. And listen, I, we appreciate the just the kind words and the support that you've been able to bring for the podcast since day one. So from Kevin and I, we definitely appreciate it. And to everybody else that's been listening to the podcast as well, supporting it from whether it's listening to it or watching it on here, we definitely appreciate it. And Kev, I know we get a lot of uh, NBA content to go over this week just because a lot of these second-round playoff games are starting to get going. And, um, you know, we'll definitely be touching on more NBA topics as the week progresses. But other than that, that's pretty much all I got from here. Other than that, like I said, definitely appreciate the support, you guys. I know Kevin and I, we try to put out the best content that we can and that's what we will continue to do for you guys. But until next time, we will see you guys later.
1: everybody. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan, And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are.